Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, and subbing in again for Emma Ashford while she's out on maternity leave is John Glazer, Director of Foreign Policy Studies at Cato. Hello, John. Hello, Trevor. Today, we're going to dive into the hot-button issue of the moment, uh, and that is the Trump administration's handling of Ukraine. In particular, we're going to talk a lot about process today. Um, as I'm sure everyone is aware by this point, you know, the, how Trump has used uh, his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland to lead an effort to press Ukraine into investigating Joe Biden's son's business dealings and to breathe life, you might say, into conspiracy theories about Ukrainian meddling in the 2016 campaign. Uh, but you also may have noticed that uh, the Republicans have sort of trotted out this interesting line of attack uh, to stem the impeachment tide, and, and that is that, hey, look, all, all presidents use irregular channels to make foreign policy. Um, all foreign policy is inherently political, and, you know, quid pro quos are kind of pro forma. They're pretty normal. Um, so there's nothing to see here uh, is the kind of upshot of the whole thing. Uh, but, but we've got questions here. And so those questions include, you know, how common are irregular channels of foreign policy? What, you know, are they a good idea? Why do we use them? Do they work? Uh, and then, you know, with that sort of basis, how do Trump's actions, um, you know, with regard to Ukraine kind of compare to standard normal? And, you know, what kind of consequences do all this have? Um, so here to discuss these issues with us is Jim Goldgar, a professor at American University, where he served as the dean of the School of International Service for many years, and who is also currently the Robert Bosch Senior Visiting Fellow at the Brookings Institution. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I love listening to this podcast. And I'm a big fan of Fuel to the Fire, your new book. So just wanted to plug that too. I will not complain. Fantastic. <laughs> All right, let's let's jump right in. So Rudy Giuliani seems like a weird dude to me. I don't know him, but I, he seems like a weird dude. So that might be coloring maybe my view, maybe some other people's views of Trump's actions here. So Trump is using a, his personal lawyer to conduct foreign policy. Is that is that itself weird? How common is irregular foreign policy channel usage? Well, we've had examples of this historically, and it's not so much the the use of an irregular channel that uh, that always uh, irritates the people who are part of the regular channels and the regular process, but it's the really the purpose for which this was used. I, I, you know, uh, an example that's similar in terms of uh, a type of person, a person with no formal position at the White House, but just somebody the president trust, trusted was Harry Hopkins, who uh, was used as an irregular channel by Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, Hopkins had served uh, for many years for Roosevelt, including as Secretary of Commerce. Uh, he was too ill to continue in that role, stepped down, ended up living at the White House for several years. Uh, Roosevelt trusted him completely. And uh, at the beginning of World War II, when Roosevelt was wanted somebody who could deliver messages to Winston Churchill, and Roosevelt would feel like, okay, I'm sending somebody I completely trust to do this, he chose Harry Hopkins. Uh, there were a lot of people who criticized it, thought it was weird. Uh, reportedly, when Churchill was first told about Hopkins coming for his first meeting, he said, who? Uh, you know, it's, but it was to conduct the nation's business at a moment of great danger to the country and to the world. It wasn't 
to dig up political dirt on an opponent. Yeah. And I, I think something that's really important is that to, is to understand that foreign policy making, you know, yes, there are, you know, many large important institutions involved in that process, the State Department, the Defense Department, and so on. But at the end of the day, foreign policy making has always been at the highest levels um, around the president, a, a personal process as much as anything else. The president needs to trust his national security advisor, trust his secretary of defense. And when you look at how the National Security Council operates, every president has one thing on paper and then there's how it actually works in practice. So so I guess, you know, just sort of spinning that out, I mean, the notion that a, a president would lean on a trusted person outside of maybe the precise organizational chart is not that odd. Right. I mean, another example uh, people have been talking about recently is 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. President Kennedy, Kennedy relied heavily on his brother Bobby, who did have a position in government, attorney general, but he wasn't, he wasn't a national security advisor. He wasn't a special envoy. He wasn't secretary of state. Uh, but at a moment when Kennedy wanted to make sure that Khrushchev got a message that he could say, okay, I hear this message and I know it's coming from President Kennedy. He used his brother and he used his brother with the Soviet ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Dobrynin. And but even there, again, the the committee, the XCOM, the group of people at the top level who had been working on figuring out what the policy should be, they had come to an agreement on what the policy should be. And then Kennedy was using his brother to deliver the message. But but also, again, of course, right? I mean, for John F. Kennedy, you don't trust. He didn't trust anybody as much as he trusted his brother, and and he knew that if his brother spoke to someone, the person receiving the message would know that it was as good as if it came from the president of the United States. Yeah, it seems like there's sort of two two things going on there. Not not to get deep state yet. We'll get there, but but you know, certainly a president could worry about leaks. Right. Um, a, a president could also worry about. Uh, whether the person would handle in-person negotiations in a way that really jibed, you know, with what they would say in that moment, were they able to be there? Uh, but the other thing that you know, I, you, you mentioned that I think you, you pointed out in the very fine piece that you wrote with Elizabeth Saunders about this is that you know, when you send your brother, who's the attorney general or a personal friend, th this is the credibility of that signal might be higher than just sending a professional diplomat. Right. I mean, it it it. Those, those irregular channels, usually what the president is looking for is someone who they trust to deliver the message they want delivered and somebody who they know their, the interlocutor is going to view as completely credible because they know that that person is speaking for the president. Okay, so irregular channels per se aren't necessarily that irregular throughout history. Um, you know, what's irregular about this time around is that um, the ir irregular channel was working at cross purposes uh, with the official channel, not in service of the national interest. So if, if irregular channels sort of happen, what about the other issue of quid pro quos, linkages between issues, uh, bargaining, that kind of thing? Does that happen frequently? Yeah, and that would be a, a perfectly uh, normal thing under normal circumstances. You would... I mean, if, especially you're giving American taxpayer-funded assistance, 
You're going to say to the country that's receiving the, the assistance, if you want the assistance, you have to do X, Y, or Z. And in fact, we know because this has been this has come up with respect to what Vice President Joe Biden was doing when he was in office. He was telling the Ukrainians, you got to clean up the system. We're not just going to keep giving this aid unless you clean things up. Uh, and was actually trying to reduce corruption. And and that would be a, a perfectly normal thing to do. We're not giving you this money unless you clean up the corruption. What Again, what wasn't normal was we're not giving you this money unless you go on TV and say you're investigating the Bidens. That That's why it crossed the line. Yeah. So, I mean, I, let, let's just sit on that for a minute. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's one thing that it, it's sort of level one weird that you have an irregular channel working at sort of cross purposes from what you have the regular diplomats doing. Eh, maybe you could forgive that occasionally because you don't want to tip your hand or something, theoretically. Um, but I, I, the, the line that's been crossed here, I think, is the purpose to which which this was done. And, you know, is this uncommon, though? I mean, you know, presidents are deeply political animals. One has to assume that most of what they do, they have at least one eye on re-election or their party or whatever. You know, it, it maybe sounds a little grubby because there was one particular person who kind of gets singled out here. But is this all that unusual? Well, so presidents talking about their domestic politics to other leaders is not an unusual thing. Uh, it, it, again, it's it's are you asking that other leader to do something that, I mean, in this case, would be foreign interference in a U.S. election, which is against the law. So that 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 makes it a problem. You know, sim- simply discussing, even explaining American domestic politics in the particular situation. Uh, you know, a great example that's come to light uh, in the past year or so because of uh, Clinton Library. Uh, presidential library having declassified uh, a, a number of the conversations between Bill Clinton and Boris Yeltsin, the then president of Russia, when they were talking about the issue of NATO expansion, NATO expanding to include countries of Central and Eastern Europe, a big hot button issue. And it was a hot button issue as the discussions were going on in the run up to both Yeltsin and Clinton's reelection in 1996. Uh, you know, Yeltsin was explaining to Clinton, hey, I've got. You know, hardliners in my country are beating beating me up here. I mean, I I can't I can't just say yeah, sure, go ahead and enlarge NATO. I would just you know be taking a beating back home. And Clinton said to him, "Well, let me just explain to you my domestic politics, Boris. I've got Republicans who are pushing this because they think it's going to work with constituencies in important states in the Midwest, like Wisconsin, Ohio, and Illinois. And so, you know, I, I have to think about." You know, I, I have to. I have my own domestic politics, and you know, just wanted to explain it to you. But, but it was. I mean, they were each providing an explanation to the other about why their positions might reflect their own domestic politics, but they weren't. Certainly, Clinton wasn't asking Yeltsin to come interfere in the American election. Now, you know, Clinton did support a. A loan from the International Monetary Fund to Yel- to Russia during the presidential campaign, and you know that was seen as giving a boost to Yeltsin's electoral chances. But but he wasn't he wasn't asking Russia to intervene in the United States election. Yeah, and I I don't know if this is exactly what you were getting at, Trevor, but uh, presidents have to ask people to do all kinds of ugly things. 
the distinction here again is uh, people are willing to do lots of ugly things and keep it secret and keep it classified so long as the, it's for reasons of state. Uh, you know, if there's a legitimate state reason that this needs to be classified or performed, uh, people will be quiet about it. The reason that didn't work out in this case was because it wasn't for a reason of state. It wasn't President Trump saying, here's how we can benefit American national interests by doing X, Y, Z with Ukraine. He was rather thinking very narrowly and for himself. And so that's why I think the transgression seems clearer, even though there are lots of blurry lines and, and murky things that presidents have to ask them their subordinates to do. Well, and just you'd look at the whole record of that July 25th phone call, and Trump wasn't doing any business on behalf of the American people. Right. I mean, that's what's so shocking. I mean, you know, it, was, it, it wouldn't have made it uh, better if he had uh, done some business on behalf of the American people and then also asked this favor from Zelensky. But at least you could have felt like he was doing something on behalf of the United States. To have a conversation in which the only thing he cares about is whether or not Zelensky is going to go out there publicly and announce these uh, investigations is is really shocking. And the reasons behind the irregular channel have now been demonstrated by the chronology that we know about. Um, the ambassador to Ukraine, uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch, had to be uh, smeared and then booted out of her position not because she didn't do her job or was anti-Trump, but because she probably would not have tolerated the skullduggery that Trump's irregular channel was trying to accomplish. Um, and so the the purpose behind the irregular channel was because these were f f demands that were um, unpalatable and unscrupulous. Illegal. Yeah, probably unconstitutional prop or something, some version thereof. And I think, you know, for me, the other thing that, you know, if you're the Trump administration, you're trying to argue this is just a normal sort of way of doing business. It it, it does start to fall apart right there when you realize all of the, uh, I don't know, sabotage, self-sabotage that the administration is doing to the normal channel while pursuing the other channel. I mean, that's to me kind of a sign that it's not just, oh, an additional channel. It's not just a complimentary or, you know, especially credible or whatever have you. Nope. This is, we're trying to do stuff that people, we don't want anyone to know about. And so we're going to get rid of all the possible witnesses to that. And that's, that makes it seem pretty bad. Well, and it's also, I mean, this is an issue that Congress on a bipartisan basis should care a lot about because on a bipartisan basis, they voted in support of this aid to Ukraine. And so they shouldn't want it distorted for personal purposes. They they voted on that aid, the aid should go. It, there shouldn't be a holdup because you're waiting for President Zelensky to commit to something. So that button might be a good segue to the next discussion because um, unfortunately, the system is not working as you implied it ought to work. And this isn't being condemned on a bipartisan basis. It's really partisan. And one of the methods that Republicans have turned to in order to combat this narrative um, and uh, argue against impeachment uh, is to contribute to this narrative of a deep state versus what we're used to, which is a discussion about, you know, 
members of the administration, members of the executive branch working under a president and in, in unison with his uh, or her foreign policy preferences. Um, there's the prestige of like civil servant and foreign service officer type uh, people. And then there's this this increasing narrative now of some kind of nefarious deep state that doesn't work for the national interest and works unaccountably and and so on. Uh, that's a pretty new thing in American politics, I think. Um, Trump revved the engines and now it seems like the Republican Party is uh, is all over that narrative. Um, yes and no. I mean, you know, presidents, there's always some amount of tension between presidents coming in and their political appointees and wanting to you know, have a change in policy and people who are there long-term serving on, you know, serving what they believe is the national interest and uh, and not being a partisan, not being part of a political, political party. I mean, they end up having to carry out the agenda of the current president, but presidents, you know, have long expressed concerns about whether people in the bureaucracy, you know, can really be counted on. Uh, Harry Truman used to complain about what he called the striped pants boys in the State Department. And, um, and, but, but there hasn't been a narrative at the top of the headlines like there is now. Well, no, this isn't, this is, this is really attacking these people, um, in a very personal way. Uh, suggesting that they can't be trusted, suggested that they're to undermine the president uh, and the president's policies as voted on by the American people. And so I think it's been very important that what you're seeing are these uh, really quite extraordinary individuals who have served in government for a long time. And in, in Ambassador Bill Taylor's case, you know, he's served the country for 50 years, uh, including the military service during Vietnam. Uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch, who we've mentioned before, George Kent, Deputy Assistant Secretary at the State Department. You know, these are, uh, you know, these are all people who are incredibly dedicated, uh, work hard. They're sometimes put in very difficult situations. Uh, they're there to carry out the stated policy of the United States, and of course, what's what's been hard for them is that they're there to carry out the stated policy of the United States, and then when they see this other thing going on, and they're like, "What is that?" That's you know, uh, it's it's unstated, and it's not their understanding of what's stated, and that's where you get this. That's where you get this clash. So there's no question that we're in a. I, I mean, we're in a much we're beyond sort of the the normal oh my god the bureaucracy is so hard to move and you know these people are there now and they'll be there for the next president and it's hard to create change that's been a sort of a theme that you get uh, uh that's a long running theme but this is really beyond that this is these people are trying to sabotage the president of the United States and that's what's so uh awful about the way they're being treated you know i think even the worst Actually, especially the worst lies have a kind of particle of truth in them. And you started out answering your question this way, which is that, I mean, the executive branch is a monstrosity. It's huge. There's so many people. They talk about the absurd numbers of people that have a security clearance, for example. And uh, just getting a clear policy at the end of the day through that 
monstrosity is very, very difficult. And it is certainly true that there is a kind of policy consensus that happens through socialization where big changes are difficult to make because you have so many people within these institutions used to a certain way of doing things. And so that sort of pejorative deep state term uh, is based on an actual insight into how, how American foreign policy operates. But it's um, changed and becomes cartoonish and it's worse than a caricature because it ends up not only being wrong in the way it's articulated, but as Jim points out, it really victimizes a group of people that uh, were simply trying to carry out policy as opposed to, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just, you know, really, really dedicated individuals. I worked um, for a year in government in the mid-90s on a fellowship, so I was not a political appointee, but I had a fellowship. I was in the government. I worked at the State Department and on the National Security Council staff, and I, I was just blown away by the talent of the civil servants and foreign service officers that I worked with, the military, you know, intelligence community. Just an incredible group of people had no idea what political party they might have supported. I mean, you, you know, you just couldn't tell sort of what their own personal political views were. Uh, they were there to carry out the policy of that particular administration, and they would then be working in the next administration, the George W. Bush administration, a Republican administration, and they'd be carrying out the policy of that administration. So it's, it's we're very fortunate, and, and it's, ex, you know, we have extraordinary people in these positions, and you know, hopefully, young people looking at people like Bill Taylor and Marie Ivanovich will look at them and say, "Oh my gosh, like I want to be like that." And they'll they'll decide they too want to go into the foreign service. So, you know, hopefully, they're not uh, terrified about at the prospect of how they would be treated later. Yeah, don't go into the foreign service if you want to be at the center of an impeachment <laughs> scandal twenty, thirty years from now. Well, I, you know, I, I, I agree with you, Jim. I, I'm, you know, working D.C. all the time. I am routinely impressed. I, I mean, I sometimes joke that, you know, D.C. is home to the, like its mascot is the Ernest Do-Gooder. Um, you know, a little boring, uh, maybe a little overly focused on achievement and the resume, but by God, do people here care about what they do? I mean, on all sides, all jobs, it's amazing. And, you know, I was glad to see uh, Peggy Noonan, you know, one of Reagan's former speechwriters, uh, write a column in the Wall Street Journal where she said, man, I'm watching these things and boy, Taylor and Yovanovitch are pros. Boy, they are impressive. Like no one should be under any doubt about how, you know, high quality the folks working at the State Department. I'm like, well, all right, that's that's coming across, I think. But the problem to me is that there is a very large, and as John's, you know, pointing out, a, a very large media machine right mm -hmm. now feeding the other side of the story. And unfortunately, Trump is really, his whole administration to me is a, is a, is like my worst nightmare of the, the, the flag carrier for this concept, which is not just that the deep state exists, but it must be replaced with a cult of personality and utter loyalty. And so I'm always thinking of Stephen Miller's comment early on in the Trump, he shall not be, what was the exact phrase? He shall not be, you know, challenged. He's the president. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand that he's the president. Thus, he should be challenged. Like there's exactly the opposite. And so unfortunately, I think, you know, the, the, 
I, you know, the, the slippery slope fear that I have is that you know we start to chip away at what the the State Department and other departments actually do because the president just you know con continues to you know acquire more and more power on foreign policy and other things uh, as he sort of has done Oval Office has done over decades and I don't think we're in a very good spot right now and I think you know there are many problems but one of them is this sort of aggregation of executive branch powers just so so massive that it it. The president can fight the deep state a little too much at this point. Well, and you know, you would also expect that when diplomats are unfairly attacked like this, the Secretary of State would be there to defend them. And he is nowhere to be found. Uh, and speaking of norms, you know, there's all kinds of norms that have been broken uh, under the Trump presidency. But if the one that is now at the center of the impeachment debate, if uh, soliciting uh, political dirt from a foreign power against your political rivals doesn't end in impeachment and removal. I mean, you can sort of say it'll end in impeachment and probably not removal, but uh, failure to remove him for this, it does set a precedent. Future presidents are going to know that this is actually not crossing the line. And there's no guarantee that future presidents will be uh, a higher or lower caliber than the current one. <laughs> So the whole question of whether Congress is really serious about playing its role as a separate branch of government, having constitutional authorities, and you know, impeaching for high crimes and misdemeanors is uh, is one of those. And the uh, you know to have it to have it be this partisan, where you really don't. I mean, the Republican go-to is figuring out new tortured logics to defend the president uh, since they can't really defend him on the substance grounds. It just will be a further erosion of congressional authority. And we already have, a, we already have this incredibly powerful executive branch, as you were saying before, Trevor. I mean, this is a you know, this is a, a feature of, of American politics, and especially foreign policy, this, this incredible growth of president, presidential power vis-a-vis -vis Congress. And Congress just seems completely incapable of asserting itself uh, as the kind of branch of government that the founders intended it to be. Yeah, there were two things that the founders got wrong. I mean, they got it wrong probably a lot of things, but two things in this uh, category. Number one, they overestimated... Uh, how jealously the branches would guard their various prerogatives because uh, Congress hasn't been super jealous about many of them. And they also uh, overestimated the public's ability to uh, be civically engaged in a way that can counteract those worst instincts of say in this case, Congress. So the only reason that Republicans can engage in that tortured logic and go on and on about process as opposed to addressing the actual issue at hand is because they reliably expect their constituents and their conservative fans not to check with the other side and only listen to what they say. And so without civic engagement of a responsible kind and without branches of government jealously guarding their powers, uh, the constitutional system is uh, not as... Uh, not as uh, favorable uh, as it as it maybe as maybe some people think it is 
doomed, I tell you. We're doomed. No, I, I really hope not. All right, but but on on that note, let's let's sort of close it off with some prediction forecasting. Um, I, this has got to back up on us somewhere, right? I mean, this shenanigans. We cannot go through all of this and and there's no impact on our policies towards Ukraine. No impact on our foreign policy, sort of more broadly. Jim, what do you sort of imagine these impacts are or will be? And you know. Sort of a sidebar here is: Does it matter that what would the impact have been if it didn't come out, but Trump had sort of gotten away with it? Would, would we be talking? Would, would, you know, it's, it's a little weird of a question, but I. Well, right. I mean, imagine. I mean, imagine a situation in which you know we didn't know about any of this. There was no whistleblower uh, complaint originally to uh, get this process in motion. None of the people that we've been hearing from who've been subpoenaed to testify during these hearings would have likely said anything. We may well have seen Zelensky go on CNN to say that Ukraine was opening an investigation of the Bidens. And, um, you know, I, I think the, the problem for us now is just a recognition that the kind of conversation that Trump had with Zelensky on July 25th, he's probably had a lot of those kinds of conversations. So, you know, has is, is, is our entire foreign policy been corrupted? Uh, you know, I mean, he's shown himself to be a corrupt individual. So we have to think, okay, this is, this is the way he acts. It means that foreign leaders know, as Zelensky did, for example, how much they have to flatter him personally. Uh, especially if you're the leader of a country that's vulnerable, like Ukraine is, uh, you know, Chancellor Merkel doesn't have to flatter him in the same way, and apparently she doesn't. Otherwise, he would like her better. So um, it's uh, it just means that he's a pretty easy mark. Uh, the you know leaders know what they have to do uh, to get what they want. Um, and I think that it just, uh, it, it means that we've got sort of bigger problems as he deals, especially with the, the bigger issues of Russia and China, issues like North Korea, you know, Ukraine's an important issue. The sovereignty and independence of Ukraine is important. It's, it's not at a level of the, what we're calling the strategic competition with Russia and China. And you just. I don't have confidence in his ability to manage that foreign policy and those relationships. I don't have confidence in his team's ability to do it. And so, you know, the big question right now is, is it just one term of this, which, you know, we can probably make it through, uh, or is it two terms? If it's two terms, you can, you can do a lot of damage to American foreign policy and American standing in the world. My uh, Ukrainian friends are horrified, actually not because they're so worried about a big change in what Congress will do for them, but really because their reputation building exercise has been set back immensely. Um, yes, Ukraine is a corrupt place if you look at the metrics and so on, but there are a lot of people in Ukraine, you know, fighting the good fight and, and they feel like this is just an absolute gut punch. 
And so it's ironic because they, this may ensure that they get more aid, actually, weirdly, um, because the US now sort of may feel like they have to, but I'm not sure Ukraine will be glad for the trade the way it came out. But Jim, I think your point is just you know really spot on, which is four years, you might be able to hold your breath. Yeah, you're a superpower after all. Eight years though, Eight years and and you know sort of trying to imagine spin out what, what happens as Trump sort of pays attention to one place after another because it's fine if he's not paying attention to your country because then he's not doing some kind of weird thing you're letting the pros do their job but wherever he starts paying attention I'm thinking about Ukraine I'm thinking about Russia I'm thinking about China I'm thinking about North Korea then it's who knows I mean it's that uncertainty that's driving me nuts and I I feel like in as I do with a lot of congressional activity, I wish most of it would just stop because I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm pretty sure I won't like the outcome. And Trump's foreign policy has become like that for me. I don't. I want less of it because I just don't know where it's going to go. And again, you know, the striking thing about the July 25th phone call, and I, I, you have to think you would just see this if we had the records of other phone calls. I mean, you know, they released the April uh, phone call uh, in which he didn't say anything there either. Uh, and I, I was sort of surprised. I thought that that made him look good. I, you know, he just he couldn't. He sort of said the same three sentences over and over. He didn't have a thought in his head. Uh, I mean, that July twenty fifth phone call. Just we're so focused on the. I want you to do me a favor, though. And we do need to step back and look at that that entire thirty minute phone call and nothing in there on the nation's business. I mean, come on, man. You're the president. Like, I do someone on behalf of how, us. How nice the Ukrainian women in the you know beauty pageant were and whatnot, but nothing about foreign policy or security or you know. And the other the other thing about the July 25th phone call is ripping on our allies. You know, I took the chance to take another pot shot at Merkel, who he doesn't like. You know, instead of as a normal normally a president would talk about the way in which the United States is working with its allies to to support. The new Ukrainian government's efforts to root out corruption. Uh, again, just something on behalf of us. And I just think we would probably see that in most of his phone calls, that it's just nothing about the country and it's just all about him. And on that lovely note, let's let's put a pin in it and, and you know, this, oh gosh, that was a great discussion. It did not end anywhere happy, but I think that's just where we're at these days. So thanks, Jim, for joining us today, John. Thanks to our producers, uh, Cecil Sherman and Luis Ahumada Abrigo, and everyone for listening. Thanks. To continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems. And if you like the show, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. 